Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. So scrolling through my Facebook feed recently, I saw some amazing photos from a number of very impressive EDM LDs. It was an article put together by another brand and I, I had to take a look. And one of the photos that caught my eyes was this giant eyeball staring right back at me with lasers and lighting. And the the attention to detail was definitely noteworthy. It was something that made me go like, man, somebody put a lot of time and effort into this content, into this look, into this, in the, into the entire look of the show. And so it was, it was, Enough to make me like, man, I want to find out who did that. So a couple Google searches and I was, uh, I found a, a very impressive gentleman who's with me today. His name is Ross Chapel. He is a lighting designer out of the UK. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Some of the photos on your website are so unique. And and I just have to I had to take a moment and be like, man, where does your inspiration come from? Like, how did this come to be? Oh well, uh, thanks for the kind words. I mean, I'll pass that on to the um, the other guys in the team that we we work with on those kind of shows that you see there as well. But um, you know, I think uh, a lot of it comes from just the kind of musical drive that that myself and and people that I work with have uh, when it comes to creating shows. You know, is the focus is very much as, you know, what's the musical style, you know, and, and, and kind of what would that look like if you were to try and draw a song or something, you know, I guess that's kind of what we try and go for. You know, I, I guess if it's, you know, minimalist, maybe techno-y kind of electronic music, then straight lines, 45 degrees, nothing that kind of breaks from those kind of rule sets is, is what we might say we see in, um, in, in line with that musical style. And, and that's kind of what creates... The product that you're seeing there it's it's minimalism and repetition lots of straight lines and i think that's kind of what creates the looks that you're referring to there so you're primarily music driven music oriented is that what brought you into this industry was just the the, the music and your passion for making music look the way it sounds yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, not to say never, but I, I doubt you'd catch me on a corporate gig unless it was the right one. Because the reason I'm kind of here doing this today is is is, is purely because of, of you know my, my passion for music, and um, I got into lighting because it's the the perfect cross section between music and technology. Um, I never really had the desire to learn an instrument, although I did kind of train in studio production back when I was at university and such. But um, I got into lighting when I realized I had a knack for it. And, you know, I, I just, you know, fell in love with the process of 
designing, producing and operating shows. I mean, it's for me, it's the same reason why a, a drummer might join a band. You know, that's that's how they create impact in a musical sphere, I guess. And, um, you know, for me, is is lighting is, is how I, I bring that impact in, in line with the music, really. Cool. So what was your first realization that lighting was your passion? Oh, so um, well, I was studying at a, a music technology course at college, which I guess you call high school. And they, they had a, a kind of a, a venue that was associated with that kind of music technology course. And, and they had a, it was a, a 088 fat frog. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. And uh, there was a with load the, of with the three on. finger things. Uh, man, that's a classic. Yeah, that's right. And um, me, me being me, was just looking like, oh, this has lots of buttons and faders. What's this? So I kind of started to get into it. And um, there was, I think there was six moving lights. I think I, I can't remember what they were. Respectable. My head. Yeah. And there was this separate little joystick kind of controller that they had as well, which is equally as fascinating to me at the time. So this venue space was actually open to the public maybe once a month for, for kind of small scale events. And uh, I, would, I would man the fat frog and the little joystick controller there. So that was my first foray into lighting. Nice. That's a, that's a respectable uh, origin story there. As soon as you started hitting buttons and making things flash, you, that was, you were hooked. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of went from there, really. I guess a uh, similar story. I, I moved on to university and did a similar course, but it was actually in um, more kind of uh, studio production of music. But they also had an event space, which I kind of I followed the same path and just said, you know, I'm interested in doing this. And it was kind of a paid position. Uh, so it was great experience. They had touring acts coming in and out of there. It was a smallish venue, but they had a Jan's Vista. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I spent just over two years kind of working in there as well, kind of getting a feel for it and a bit more of an understanding. Cool. Was it always electronic music or were you trying to find more rock and roll or did it, does it matter? The musical style doesn't matter to me whatsoever. I mean, um, if you were to look at my record collection or my Spotify library, you'll see that uh, I don't particularly pigeonhole myself uh, to a particular musical style. So whatever was presented in front of me, I would, uh, I would work with it. Cool. Then how did you fall into the EDM world? Well, I have a, I think, well, the, the true history of it is was when I was um, when I was very young, I guess about 13, 14 years old, I worked a, a summer job with my, uh, with my dad, kind of more or less cleaning warehouses where, where he used to work and um, to save up because I desperately wanted a set of decks. Um, my, my next door neighbor back then, who was friends of my parents, had a set of decks and um, my dad invited me around there one day to have a look. And, and just from there, I was just fascinated by, you know, the, the link between music and the kind of techie side of it. And um, that's what I wanted to do. So I bought my first set of belt drive starter pack turntables and a mixer. And I started buying records with, um, I guess I had about five pound a weekend, which back then would get you a one EP, which... Mm-hmm. which seems crazy now, really, because it's, it's more in the realms of £10. Um, but yeah, so I've always, I guess to answer your question, I've always been in the electronic music sphere. Um, I, you know, I like, like the electronic style quite a lot. I've always bought a lot of records. Um, so I've, I've always kind of landed more or less in, in electronic music spaces. And, um, and, you know, you just kind of meet people that way, I guess, from what you do for your hobbies, etc. Right on. So in the US, 
the the EDM world kind of came from back uh, from the underground warehouses into the nightclubs, and it was a lot of people thought it was just going to end there, but now EDM is the biggest ticket on sale. Is that the same? Is that the same on the in the UK? Um, I, I don't know that I'd say it's the biggest ticket on sale, but it's definitely a it's definitely a big ticket. That's for sure. Okay. I mean, I think it's been a big ticket uh, in Europe for, for, you know, before it kind of boomed in the U S as well. I mean, I know, like you say, the, the music originally spawned in the U S in the eighties, nineties. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of been pretty, pretty alive in, in Europe for, for decade, a couple of decades now, at least. And, um, but it's just, it's incredible how, big the boom was in the states in kind of the last the last five to ten years uh, the reason i the reason i ask is you talk about how much you're enjoying the the technical side of the music when i'm just old enough to remember when edm music the extent of the technology was a light jockey laptop and a bunch of bunch of mac 250s and you're like that's that's what you do for edm you just make lights flash and change colors as fast as you can. But that's not the case anymore. EDM is the most creative, the most technologically advanced and some of the largest structures involved now. And it's out of necessity. It's not just on a whim. So I I can only imagine that the EDM world offers a, a plethora of technological advances to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess um, it's just to support what you're saying there. I guess it's quite demanding in that it's not just a stage show. It's it's about the energy that's being created, and I think a lot of you know a lot of modern electronic music is is a lot of the focus in the songwriting process. I think is just about the energy that it creates for people, and I think a lot of the fans are there because it creates a certain energy. You know, it's it, you have a good time, you party with your friends, and and, and, you know, I think that that comes back to what we're doing with the lighting as well is, is you have to make sure that it's, you know, all encompassing and there's these audience packages and arenas that, you know, are, are sufficient for this kind of energy building and that that is, you know, in line with the musical, the music itself. Mm-hmm. If you weren't at Front of House Running Lights, would you be a an EDM audience member yourself? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with no. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I, I don't mind uh, going to, you know, I like to go and see DJs and hear live music and that. But if, if the capacity is any larger than 200, 300, I think it's a little bit too much for me. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's, I, I, can see, I can see why people enjoy it. But, but I think, you know, this is, this is what we do for work. We see it, you know, we, we make the, the journey to front of house from, from backstage, you know, hundreds of times a year. So... In all honesty, I think it's the last place I'd like to be stood in my time off, but <laughs> that's not just to discount the enjoyment of it. It is a journey now. I've uh, I've done a few of those events where he's like, oh boy, I'm going to have to get to front of house. So it's going to take me like 30 minutes to get there. Oh, it's always a godsend to see a kind of mojo barrier channel down the middle of the audience area. It really is. <laughs> yeah. You have to really beg and plead for those these days because people are like, no, that's that's another 1500 tickets there. What are you talking about? A pathway? No way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It used to be a safe DJ booth. And then people would come up and be like, Hey, 
can you change the the music? You're like, now nah, I'm the lighting guy. But now, now it, it's a it's a it's a fortress out front of house to get everything that you need out there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Especially on some of these larger stages. I mean, I've uh, been up. You know, I've been there's some stages I've been to, and and there'll be you know six to eight full size grand amaze sat there, uh, each serving different purposes, and then backups for each. <laughs> we've come a long way <laughs> yes yeah the, the the competition for the edm world is just that uh, cutthroat now you you can't just be a flash and trash ld anymore you have to come with a special message you have to come with an impact it, it has to be unique now I can only imagine that drives a lot of the decisions you make yeah and i think that's good i i think you know it it's and I think that's part of what has pushed it into, you know, big ticket world really is, is, is you know, it's become competitive and it's an art form that people now recognize is, is that that article that you discovered online, I, I guess, wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the advancements in, in kind of the productions that surround electronic music really, you know, it is very much a recognized thing and it's, and it's, you know, people are creating amazing shows with you know lots of detail and and you know lots of kind of technical stuff happening in the background so in the edm world when you're working does it come with a specific lifestyle that suits you i'm, I'm thinking of like the the overnight from one venue to another straight into like a four-hour program or even 30 minutes to get your whole setup does that does that uh, does that suit your lifestyle i mean you know, I think it's one of those rough with the smooth things. I mean, I, I there's definitely people that have um, more strenuous touring um, schedules than I do, but there's definitely been occasions where um, you'll arrive with, with very limited time to program or, you know, you finish one show and then you go and you prepare the next. But I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's in, in my mind, that's just part of the job. Some, some days you have the luxury of, of going back to a, a hotel and, and resting and, and some days you don't, you know, and it's all just part of the excitement of touring really. Yeah, it is. I miss that terribly. So one of the things I noticed in a lot of the photos is you're shooting a lot of beams out into the audience, which is coming from the rock and roll, rock and roll side of, uh, we do it occasionally, but we would never we would try never to like stop and blind the audience for too long. And I bring that up because in the EDM, the audience is the show. Whereas in the rock and roll world, the band is the entire performance. When do you decide to light the audience? And when do you decide not to light the audience? So and uh, I know that's a big question, but uh, yeah. I think we can get through this. Sure. So I, th I think there's a few facets to that, actually. I think in, in um, electronic music shows, like I said um, previously, the audience area is, is just as important as what's on stage. I mean, you know, most most electronic music acts, they aren't particularly exciting to look at. I mean, obviously, they need to be seen, whether it's all the time or at, at specific moments. But I think it's about creating energy. That's what it is, is like, you know, the, the, the music itself is is, is kind of you know, maybe 50% of that, of that energy that the audience are kind of reacting to. And I think the rest of it is production. And I, you definitely see that when you do shows which have, you know, large audience packages, which versus shows that don't, you know, the audience certainly respond to, to, to what's happening with the lighting. And I mean, you know, beams and, and strobes are obvious tools for these things because they're, they're useful and they're bright and impactful in those kind of environments. 
I, I think in terms of illuminating the audience, let's say as, as kind of like, you know, as a wash or in your kind of like mole circumstances, I, I personally like to kind of keep it to a minimum where I can get away with it. You know, some circumstances musically call for it more than others. You know, maybe there's more of a call and response or audience interaction mm -hmm. thing going on. But for me, I, I feel like if you can leave that towards the end of the show, then it remains uh, kind of retains more impact when you eventually do that. And, and another thing I think there is, is, is darkness is obviously a very powerful tool um, mm -hmm. when it comes to lighting shows. And as soon as you start doing that, too much audience light, you know, kind of washes, mole blinders, et cetera, is a, is a quick way of losing that tool. You know, if the artist taking a bow or interacting with the crowd, you know, you, you do it. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's opportunities like the first half of an encore break or during a breakdown in a popular record and based on how the audience are reacting. And I guess, you know, I, th I think, you know, for example, in, you know, Eric's shows, you know, Eric's one of my, my main, has been one of my main clients now for, for many years. And, and it's, you know, a, a video heavy show for sure. So when there's these, you know, big solo video moments, I like to make sure I always use a little bit of wash at kind of low intensities in the kind of key color of the video content because that works wonders for photography. You see some of these hero shots yeah. at the end of the gig and there's just a little bit of light on people's shoulders and people's heads that just kind of ties that area into um, what's happening on the stage. But, but other than that, just generally, like you say, the whole kind of beam thing, the kind of audience focus, you know, I think that comes down to energy really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's a certain balance that you have to, uh, a certain line that you have to walk where you want the beams to be f f sweeping through the audience, but not enough to like kill the vibe. If people are dance, you know, people don't dance during the daytime for a reason. It's because it's, it, it kills the mood. You have to really be careful to make sure that you're not illuminating so much that you ruin the appeal. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't think people really feel like they want to be, seen by by others in those those environments most of the time so yeah I, I definitely agree with you on that yeah yeah you can't ugly dance in the daytime you know you you have to if you're going to dance like nobody's watching you have to feel like nobody's watching <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so you mentioned that you prefer like the intimate 200 person edc or edm shows do you find that when it it's just too packed it's overwhelming for you yes yeah, I think so. I just, yeah. I, I don't know. I like, I like it to, yeah, I like to be able to go to the bar and grab a drink with these and then rejoin my friends. And I, I think that's a, Oh, I share that with you. Night out. <laughs> I share that. The only problem with that is that you're, I would imagine your artists love the feeling of looking out and just seeing a sea of people. I think that for, for your artists, do you, do they ask for you to illuminate the audience more, especially when there's more people? I, I think it varies case by case. I mean, um, yeah, there's certainly times where, where they kind of want to see who they're playing to for sure. Um, but again, just kind of going back to Eric's shows, you know, the, the, the key word is darkness really, because you can, you can, you know, you can always add, but you can't take away when it, uh, when it comes to light. So it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a bit of a crude way of explaining it, but it's, I think it makes what you're doing more impactful if you give yourself more space and kind of darkness. And I think too much lighting the audience is a, is a quick way of losing that, 
Uh, and I think, you know, in terms of like electronic music energy, audience packages, it's about keeping it moving. Another thing that I noticed in the photos on your website is a lack of cell phones in the air. The more I get, the more in rock and roll world, I'm seeing it more and more to a point of absurdity where there's more people holding up cell phones than not. But in your photos, I, I noticed a lack of that. Is that, is, is that reality or no, are you I, seeing that as well? I think that's by chance with the photography, to be honest with you. Um, okay. I see an awful lot of phones, particularly at the kind of the openings of, of the shows and stuff, you know, people in anticipation and yeah, they're, they're all out definitely. Yeah, it's always at the top of the show, of course. But then I would imagine that once the people get into the groove and they start dancing, are they still holding their cell phones even while dancing? Uh, There's definitely a a good uh, percentage of people that are there that are, you know, quite keen to capture the moments and and then what's happening. Definitely. All right. Is that affecting your your designs and your choices in any way? Are Are we lighting for cell phones nowadays? Well, I, I don't think it, it's really affecting the designs per se. I mean, I th- we're, we're building the shows that we think are relevant and, um, you know, to the, for the music and the kind of aesthetic that we would normally try and achieve. But in terms of are we lighting for cell phones, I think it's quite important to consider that the audience we're trying to reach spans beyond the people that are in front of us at the show at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, a good piece of promo audience footage get, can get a lot of traction online and, you know, any single show could potentially reach 10 times more people than are actually present. So, you know, if we can impress the people that are watching on a phone display, then that's going to mean better ticket sales in the future and that's better for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in terms of kind of the more the design side of it, I think... Um, I think it's more of a technical aspect, really, a technical consideration, I'll say. It's like when you're using, I guess, LED technologies, you know, both video and lighting and, you know, fixtures, you know, sharpies, beams, whatever. It's just being careful that you balance your brightness level stuff because these things can overexpose quite quickly, um, especially mm-hmm. on phone cameras and that. And that will, you know, quickly destroy that amazing bit of audience promo footage that we were just talking about. So I think that's you know, the, where the kind of the line is in, in my mind for where that consideration lands in the design process. But otherwise, I, I think, you know, that the, the kind of core focus of the design is, is what is the kind of aesthetic that surrounds the brand? What is the music and, and that okay. kind of stuff, really? It's so interesting to hear that uh, that is a real consideration. Um, just even less than a decade ago, if there were people filming a live performance, they would be ushered out. You can't, can't record a live performance. You're going to sell it on the internet or something, but now that's now we encourage it. Yeah. Please please film this. (laughs) Please tell 10,000 of your friends, please influence people to come see the next show. So weird how that, how we just embraced that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think that's just reflective of the age, you know, we're living in is that's how people, find out about, um, you know, the products and that, that they want to buy because they pop up on, on pictures on social media and et cetera. And, you know, it's no different in our industry either. You know, people, yeah. you know, I want to go and I want to go and witness that I'm going to buy a ticket. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that's our, that's the new age right there. Yeah. So another thing that was shocking when I was scrolling through your website is 
you go from a photo with this giant video wall, beautiful eye, lasers, everything like that, to the next photo, which is just a back wall of parkans. Mm-hmm. When do you when do you choose to go major high tech, and when do you use when do you choose to just kind of rely on the basics? Um, well, that the the parkan. Um... The picture with the pods of Parkan, as you're looking up there, is, is actually quite an interesting hybrid of, of kind of semi-high-tech and basics there. So what that was is it was five pods of Parkans and four pods of Parkan, um, four pods of JDCs, rather, um, right on. alternating. And they were all on automation as well. And the, the kind of the reason we kind of chose to do that was because the stylistically, the music was a lot more kind of techno-y, more kind of 140 BPM, uh, maybe slightly more repetitive in, in nature. So um, the idea behind that design was just to be able to kind of blast out very minimal, very repetitive looks using very dense groups of fixtures. But I think uh, in terms of using basics or or going high tech, I, I think there's always a place for basics in, in any show, really. I mean, most modern fixtures at the end of the day are just adaptations of the basics, but with a- added movement axis or special macro effects and, you know, I, I think these are attributes that, albeit, you know, very impressive and great, they, they don't necessarily add to the impact of a show or the audience's enjoyment, which is our kind of key focus anyway. I think our aim as lighting designers is to create impact in line with what's happening musically in a show and, and not really to show the kind of fancy tools that we have in our arsenal. Um, <laughs> and I, and I think, true. you know, I think that's, that's achievable with the basics, you know, park hands, static LED lamps, etc. But that being said, you know, there's definitely looks or transitions that can only be achieved using more high-tech fixtures. You know, maybe something requires an animation wheel plus internal shuttering, you know, in, in, in one queue to kind of create a specific look or transition. And that's kind of where you've implemented them, I guess. But um, Yeah, there's no shame in showing off what we got every once in a while. We got yeah. to let everyone know, like, hey, this is something we can do. We get, Look at this. This light has infinite pan and tilt that's awesome let's let's show it off yeah and i will say as well flying the flag for the more high-tech stuff is is when it comes to you know the requirement of versatility i mean sometimes you just need that fixture that's going to serve multiple purposes maybe it's for budget or placement reasons you know like the hybrid moving light fixtures we have now like the mega pointies you know gone are the days of requiring beam spots washes and spread across a truss it's you know i'm just going to use a use a handful of those yeah. I, I've always said that if you can't rock uh, four pods of Parkans, then you shouldn't progress past it. You shouldn't uh, add technology. If you're not rocking those Parkans well, then you shouldn't add more. So you're just going to fail even bigger. So it's just really good to see people be able to use both of them interchangeably. Yeah. And I was, I was, that's definitely one of my favorite shows to date as well. Like even, even to program it and, um, you know, kind of tempo chases and just these kind of really minimalist looks, just, just kind of on the pars and the, and the JDCs, just, you know, one element of the JDC, just using the kind of, you know, the, um, faux Zenon thing they've got there. And it was just, it, it was a really great aesthetic. I was very pleased with that. So along those lines of the high tech versus low tech, how much input do you get when it comes to the creative process and how much does your artist get? I mean, obviously your artist isn't coming to you and say, Hey, I want four pods of park hands. Was that a decision that you and your team make? Or is that something that comes from the artist? 
Oh, I think that varies on a case-by-case basis, but in, in terms of that particular show that we're talking about, I, I think, you know, there's, there's obviously a, a brand that surrounds the artist and the act that they'd like to maintain. So, um, but that's more or less kind of where that finished. And it was, it was kind of myself and my team, we were kind of like, we feel like this is what we should do for this particular show. Okay. And um, yeah, we were, you know, we were quite lucky to be given the platform to be able to produce that in that, in that way. Which one do you prefer? Do you prefer somebody coming to you with uh, a lot of requirements and a lot of restrictions? Or do you like a carte blanche design? You're like, this is the music, you go to town. Uh, I think it really depends on the project. I mean, I think sometimes boundaries are useful as it kind of helps whittle down the creative process a little bit. I mean, if you know mm-hmm. what the limitations or expectations are, then you're going to work within that to find something that is absolutely undeniably suitable for that application. Yes, you know, be it a brand or an act of a very specific direction. And I think the likelihood is, is you'll land on the winning design sooner. But however, I think the projects where there are no boundaries are the ones where like, you as a designer are, are able to express yourself. I think, you know, you're naturally always going to consider the requirements of a, of a given project. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think you're going to you're going to take a, a kind of classic rock band and, and just, you know, um, and, and fill it with, you know, Ayrton magic panels or something and lots of very digital looking stuff, for example. But I think, you know, I think it's good to have a style and, and it's, you know, the kind of free reign projects that give you a style and a brand as a designer, you know, it's, it's the same in, in kind of fashion. It's the same in music. You know, many great designers or musicians have a style and, and people instantly recognize that, uh, that mm-hmm. it's, you know, one of their creations, but you know, that being said, I think it's always prevalent to be versatile and adaptable also, especially, you know, on this side of the creative process. It's always impressive when you can tell somebody's unique style, regardless of the budget or the venue size, when you can look at designing like that's clearly a Ross Chapel design right there, whether it be a bunch of park hands or lasers and a giant eyeball. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think you've succeeded when you've kind of created that recognition. As a, as a designer. Yeah. I think that's, what's going to propel you into the next client and the next level. And next. it's not until somebody recognizes that's a Ross Chapel design. I want that guy on my team, get him in there at, at, at any cost, you know? Yeah, sure. That's always a good feeling. So what is next for you? What do you think is the next step? What are you hoping to achieve next? I mean, first and foremost, looking forward to getting back to it. Uh, uh, not yeah. not touched a console in many months, so I mean, that's my uh, that's that's my, <laughs> the first thing I'm looking forward to getting back back to. Um, but what's next is, I mean, to be honest, it was you know before before COVID hit, it was quite a healthy trajectory, and I kind of want to you know keep on that path and 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 keep doing what um, what what we were just talking about is you know is just creating that recognizable look and brand that people recognize and and you know just creating great shows that, that people love and, you know, making mm-hmm. memories for people really. Yeah. I think, I think that's what's next is just, you know, keep moving onwards and upwards. Cool. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but how has COVID affected your trajectory? Uh, are you guys still doing streaming? Are you doing, is it just a cold, cold Turkey stop? I mean, we've, we've produced um, some digital shows in, in stuff like Depends and that, that were kind of broadcast. Um, so, so we've not been completely out of the game. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest. I mean, I've, I've kind of used this period to, you know, look after myself and my health. And I know the obvious kind of thing to say in times like this is, oh, I, 
I spent my entire time creating new designs and thinking about lights, but I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you, it's, it's not really what I've done beyond what, you know, what I kind of decide I will do on a normal daily basis. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I've just been kind of been looking after myself. I've been getting back into reading again, which I hadn't been doing for a while. You know, just discovering more music and um, keeping in touch with friends and family. I, th- I think I've had more Zoom calls than hot dinners. So, um, but yeah, definitely looking forward to getting back on the road. That's for sure. What do you uh, What are you reading these days? Um, I just finished a book um, recently called Moneyland. The author's Oliver Bullo. I was recommended it by a friend, and it's kind of about global corruption and money uh, money laundering. I, I like to read about um, current affairs. So. Uh, that was one, uh, a kind of about a month or so ago. I was reading one called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which is about social media's impact on our privacy, which is very relevant at the moment. But um, I'd highly recommend it if you're interested in that sort of thing. So I got Moneyland. What was the other one? Um, the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Okay. Yeah, in, uh, in the UK, man, you guys have more surveillance than anywhere else on the planet if i remember yeah there's i think that's right i think there's more cctv cameras here than than anywhere else in the world i think yeah that's the that's a fact but i've I've definitely read something along those lines at some point i think we have to hope that that's being used for good yeah well (laughs) we can only hope yeah i i think with with that much power there comes some great responsibilities and we, we have to hope that we're that the, the people with that responsibility are being held accountable and, uh, and being transparent as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. That's totally a, uh, a tangent there, but uh, that's interesting. I will, I've added both of those look, I just added both of those books to my list. Great. Yeah. They're good reads. I'd highly recommend it if you're into that kind of subjects. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm always up on uh, current events and trying to see what I can do. I'm always concerned about the ethics of technology. Uh, we just keep progressing forward. And it's sometimes we have to ask why we're creating this technology as opposed to if we can create this technology. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, that being said, I'd highly recommend the age of surveillance capitalism. You know, it sheds a lot of light on kind of the processes at places like Google and, and kind of where that's gone since conception. All that info is just being stored on somebody else's computer somewhere. Oh, yes. It's up to them to decide what they do with it. And we can we have our suggestions, but it's not our information anymore. No, it belongs to someone else. If you uh, if you give it to them which is all the more easy to do these days, then um, it's theirs to do with what they wish. Yeah, those terms and conditions are full of uh, some loopholes. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>